All right. Good morning. Good morning, Summer Point Church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? All right. Got a few of you that are alive and well this morning. Hey, it's good to see you this morning. Hey, wasn't it great? Isn't it great to have Joe lead us in worship this morning with the team? Didn't they do such a great job? Uh, man, it's been a long time partnership. So appreciate Joe, his heart, his love for the local church, and he's super gifted. And man, the band, just, didn't they sound just incredible today? So, so good to, uh, to gather, to worship the Lord today. All right? I want to encourage you to pull out your message notes this morning. Over the last few months, kind of took a detour from Moses. We're going to come back to it. Actually, we're relaunching the series on the 23rd. It's a one-service Sunday. We're going to be back in Moses for probably another, I don't know, 10 or 15 weeks. Try to chop it up a little bit. So um, one of the things that I just feel really impressed to preach on is on the topic of shame. And so I've been thinking about it over the last few weeks and really felt like maybe God was leading me to Hosea and Gomer and kind of get fresh eyes on that book again. But I felt really led to go back to the Gospel of Luke. I preached on the prodigal son many, many years ago when we were doing a verse-by-verse study on Luke. But we're going to come at it from uh, a few different angles this morning. Same meaning, right? There's only one authorial intent the, the big idea that, that Luke is trying to give us, but many applications. So we're going to be talking, I'm going to be weaving in some, some things about sin and shame and, and how, do we, how do we get over shame, right? So Luke chapter 15, Luke chapter 15, uh, 11 to 32. I'm going to read the whole thing. Luke 15 is actually a trilogy, three stories told by Jesus. And if you remember, it's about the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. So three different frames. Um, one frame is about the lost boy, right? The prodigal son. The next frame is this, this boy is a son that was found. And then the third frame, we're going to kind of look at the end of the message is this bitter brother. This elder, older, bitter brother that was so upset about his younger brother uh, coming back to the family. And his father uh, throwing a big barbecue and a big celebration. And so we're going to look at all these characters. All right, Luke 15, uh, 11 to 32. If you have a Bible, turn there. Uh, and it says, and he said, Jesus is telling this parable, an earthly story that drives home a spiritual point. So Jesus says, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and, and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, 
His father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And, and he said to him, son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. In this parable, there are three main characters, three main players and they all symbolize something different. The first one is the, the prodigal son. The prodigal son symbolizes all of humanity. Spiritually, we are in the same boat. We are spiritually lost. We are far away from God, alienated from God. That is the picture of the prodigal son. Then you have the father in the story. The father represents our heavenly father. The father represents God, the creator of the universe, the God who longs to to, to be in communion with his creation. And then you have the elder brother. The elder brother really symbolizes the Pharisees, the, the religious uh, elites of Jesus' day. Let me give you the context behind the story. If we back up real quick, Luke 15, 1 and 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. You have to understand, tax collectors, bottom rung of society, cheating their friends and family, working for the Roman government, skimming off the top. I mean, they were the lowest of the low. They were despised. No one liked them. They were cheats. They were taking advantage of their own people. And then it says sinners were drawn to Jesus. I love that. I love that about Jesus' ministry. You know, sinners were drawn to him. Jesus didn't repel sinners. They were attracted to him. There was something about Jesus. They, they wanted to be around him. They wanted to hear his sermons. They, they wanted to be on the receiving end of his, of his miracles. And then it says the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Can you just, just envision, you know, snickering, grumbling, talking underneath their breath, you know, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus heard the grumbling, right? He heard the grumbling. He, he, he heard the attack. You know, this man, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he just politely walks away. No, he doesn't walk away. He tells a story. Actually, he tells a trilogy. He actually tells a trilogy, three stories that packs a, a heavy punch, right? And so he exposes, in telling this story, he exposes the hearts of these Pharisees. You know, the Pharisees, they had hard, calloused hearts towards people who were far away from God. The Pharisees didn't like people who were not like them. Kind of sounds like a lot of Christians today. 
If you're not like me, I don't like you, right? I don't want to be around you. But the mission field is those people who are not like you. That's the mission field, right? It's orchocentric living. It's embracing the gospel, the mission, the partnership, right? We, we, we gather, we worship, we serve, we, we, we do community, we listen to the word, we're challenged, and then we go out into the world to be lights, as Paul said, in this perverse generation. So he tells this story. He's exposing their hearts, right? They're, they have hard, callous hearts. They're unwilling to rejoice in, in the generous offer of God's grace towards sinners, Let's look at the story again. We're going to kind of walk through it little by little, okay? Little chunks at a time. Luke 15, 11 and 12. And he said, there was a rich man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. So notice the three words in the story. He said, Father, give me. What a little selfish little brat, right? Father, give me, right? The audience that day I can guarantee you, as they were listening to Jesus' words, as they were hanging on to his very words, they had to have been shocked. The youngest son is asking for his share of the inheritance. One minor problem, reality check, dad's not dead. That's kind of a problem, right? The boy's saying, hey, dad, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want your money, but I don't want to be in a relationship with you. I want independence, Dad. I want all the freedom, but I don't want the rules. I want to live my life my way. But you have to understand in Jewish culture, there's a very obscure provision in Deuteronomy that says you can pass on your inheritance while you're still living. So the younger brother, fully aware of this provision in Deuteronomy, is trying to capitalize on it, right? He, and you have to understand, a traditional Middle, Middle Eastern man in hearing this request, very selfish request, um, he would have done one of two things. Number one, he would have driven the son out of the house in complete anger, or number two, he would have divided the property. He would have followed through with the Mosaic law and this provision in Deuteronomy, he would have split the property. Well, the story tells us that the father does not drive the son out of the house in, with complete anger and rage, in, in kindness, in graciousness, in, in a loving way, he splits the inheritance. The younger brother, the elder brother, they both get their share, their share of the inheritance. Now, the dividing, dividing the property and the inheritance doesn't mean very much to us. I mean, we understand, okay, inheritance and laws and okay, but you have to understand, back in the day, a family's wealth was tied to their land and their land was tied to their identity, their social standing. So if you let go of inheritance early, you're letting go of wealth, you're letting go of your land, you're letting go of your social status in the community. It was a very big deal. So the father, instead of getting, you know, going on like uh, getting all rage-filled or being deeply hurt, he chooses to love his boy in spite of the rejection in spite of the, the selfish motives, and he gives his boy what he wants. Now let's pick up the story in verse 13 to 16. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. 
And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Here's point number one. Sin alienates us from God. This is what the story is telling us. Sin alienates us from God. Here's this young man. There's, there's no mention of him being married. So there's no mention of him having a wife, having kids. He's probably, most likely, a teenager, okay? Uh, he's reached adulthood. You were considered an adult by 12, 11, 12, 13. You could get married. You can have kids. So here's this young teenage kid, and he liquidates the inheritance, right? He takes the cash, moves far away from mom and dad, moves away from his dad. He wants independence, you know, and he engages in full-on just darkness, man, rebellion. The Bible says that he squandered his property in reckless living. Literally, in the Greek, it's the picture of tossing one's possessions into the wind. That's what he was doing. He was literally taking this inheritance and he was just fling it into the wind. He was just reckless living. No rhyme or reason or purpose to what he was doing. He was the original party animal, living life to the fullest. I think his motto was, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow I may die. He was living life. He was large and in charge. And Jesus, the amazing thing about the story, Jesus doesn't list the sins that this young man committed. Now, later in the story, in verse 30, the elder brother chimes in, and the elder brother tells the father, like a kind of snitching on the on his younger brother to dad. Hey, dad, uh, just want to let you know, right? Uh, you know, he devoured your property. He, he devoured his part of the inheritance with prostitutes. Now, we don't know if that's actually true because the elder brother never left his dad. But older brother is throwing younger brother underneath the bus. Sound familiar? Anybody? All right. Sibling rivalry. This is sibling rivalry at its finest right here. Jesus doesn't just... He doesn't mention his sins because here's the thing. The essence of sin is not badness. Sin is living a life without God. That's what sin is. Sin alienates us from God. We were created to connect with God. That's why, that's why you're breathing. That's why you're living. You were created by God. You were created for God. You were created to know God. And when we don't connect with God, we miss the grand purpose for why we were created in the first place. The prodigal son, he wastes everything. The story tells us that there was a famine that occurs in, in that far country, and, and he becomes a hired hand for a Gentile pig farmer. Now, you know you hit rock bottom when you're a Jewish boy, teenager, and you're working most likely for a Gentile, and you're helping the Gentile run his business and you're dealing with pigs. Jews and pigs, that's not kosher. Those things don't mix well. Pigs were unclean animals. So here's the situation. The prodigal son is friendless. He's homeless. He's broke. He's hungry. The stench of swine is on his flesh. His life is a complete wreck. He feels completely empty inside. Anyone ever been there? I mean, your life is just empty. You hit rock bottom, and you're like, what's going on? Like, what am I doing with my life? 
You know, is there purpose? Is there meaning? Is there a God? He comes to a point where he's like, party's over. Look at verse 17 to 19. I I love this phrase. When he came to himself, he said, so he starts kind of in his mind playing through it. What's he going to say to his dad? You know, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him. So he's playing it out. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So it says that he came to himself. Literally, he came to his senses. This is a beautiful picture of repentance. Repentance is having a change of heart and having a change of mind. Repentance is 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 something that's deeper than remorse. Remorse is just like a, a, a mental guilt thing, right? But repentance is no, I'm gonna change that. I'm not gonna do that anymore. It, it's this military term. It's you stop, you turn, you go to the other direction. It's 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 completely you're changing the course of your life. It's action-oriented. It's change of heart, change of mind. That's what repentance is. So he comes to his senses. You know what I think he realizes? Life without the Father is no fun. If you're living life without having a relationship with Christ, your life is just going to be marked with sin and pain and misery and suffering He's completely alienated from God, from, from his father. He longs to return home. He, he starts, okay, what am I going to say? Well, I sinned against heaven. I sinned against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'll be a hired servant. You know what he's doing? He's like, I'm going to make restitution. I'll pay you back, dad. I'll, I'll pay you back. I'll, I'll, I'll earn my way back into the family. I'll earn my way back into your love because I'm not worthy. I'll earn my way back to, to being a son. Look at verse 20. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. I, I, I don't, we, don't, we don't know how long they've, they've been disconnected. I mean, months, years, decades. But his youngest son has been lost. You know, a few weeks ago, our youngest son, Luke, was, uh, he was playing with a pack of friends in the neighborhood. And, and uh, you know, we always kind of want to know where he's at. So, okay, where are you going? Okay, well, you're going to go there. And he always comes back every like 30 minutes, 45 minutes, just kind of check in. We kind of know, want to know where he's, where he's at, you know. And I'm, uh, for my family, I'm like safety patrol. That's kind of my nickname. I'm, uh, you know, I, I worry. I, I can fret about a lot of things. And so um, 30 minutes rolls around, 45 minutes go by, and then, you know, then we get to an hour, and we, we don't see him. We don't, he hasn't checked in. And, and so um, me and Kansas decide, you know, we're going we're gonna to go look for him. So we start looking for him. We're driving around the neighborhood. Man, we can't find him. And the, the time is just, it's getting longer and longer and longer. And, uh, you know, being the strong husband that I am, I'm trying to keep it together for my wife, right? I'm safety patrol, but I'm starting to, I'm starting to internally panic 
Like I'm, I'm thinking like he got kidnapped, something happened, I'm never going to see my son again. And Candace has started getting worried. Well, she starts getting worried, then I have to be stronger, but I'm really the weak one when it comes to some of this stuff. And uh, so, and then we pick up Joshua, and then Joshua gets in the car, and we start looking, and, we go, and then Candace is like, oh, you know what, he, he had a friend, there's a friend down the street that plays in this neighborhood pack, so let's go to his house and let, let's see if he's there. So we show up, knock on the door. Well, this kid is already home, and it's starting to slowly get dark, and we're, we're just like really worried, and Candace is like, well, have you seen Luke? Yeah. Okay, well, when's the last time you saw him? And so he's like, oh, you know, um, earlier today, we were like hanging out in this apartment complex. I mean, literally, we got, I got John Mark in a car. He's like driving everywhere. I mean, people are like, we're, we're like texting people. Hey, have you seen Luke? You know, people are starting to get worried. People are looking for him. At this point, it's been, I mean, maybe hour 15, hour and a half. We're freaking out. So we go to this apartment complex and we see a pack of kids kind of playing. And I could see, I spot Luke. And I revved that engine so hard. I mean, pedal to the metal, man. And I'm like beelining. And I roll down the window and I look at them and I said, boy, get in the truck right now. Because here's the deal. He was down the street, across the street. Well, here's the deal. You don't cross the main street. That's the rule, right? And so when you experience something like that, where you feel like I'm going to lose a child, we've all experienced that. I mean, it's, if you don't have kids, you don't understand what I'm talking about. But you got kids, you understand it is terrifying. It's terrifying. You, you, you just start playing in your mind like I'm never going to see this kid again. And uh, luckily he was found and we hugged him, we kissed him, we embraced him. The amazing thing about this story is Middle Eastern men, fathers, didn't run. Only children and youth and moms ran. He's not acting like a father. This is the beautiful thing about the story. He's acting like a mother. You know, Middle Eastern men in, in that culture, they were seen as stern, harsh, unaffectionate. He's not acting like a father. He's acting like a mother. He's compassionate. He, he's loving. He's comforting. This reunion is so heartwarming, so tender. The boy is, is a long way off, the Bible says, and it says that the father runs to meet him. The father is running to the boy. Not the boy running to his dad. The father's running to meet him. The father doesn't come and start scolding him and condemning him and lecturing and rejecting him and you know, making him earn his love. No, he embraces his son. And it says he kisses him. In the Greek, it's the tense of the verb is he kisses him over and over and over again. We don't know how long that they have been disconnected. But we know that this reunion is so sweet. Look at verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Don't bring that skinny calf, bring the fattened calf, right? Let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Here's point number two. Admit your unworthiness. Admit your unworthiness. But then I'll also say along the same lines, you can only get over your unworthiness by finding your identity in Christ. 
See, in the story, the prodigal son, there's no excuses. There's just brokenness, confession, repentance. You know what? The, the, the beautiful thing about the story, the father, he reaches out, he runs to his boy, and he restores him before his son ever speaks. He accepts his son back before there's repentance, which is center stage. Now, you might feel completely unworthy. How could God ever accept me? How could God ever love me based on what I've done in my past? You believe that, that God wouldn't want you the way you are, that you gotta do X, Y, and Z. You gotta clean up your life. You gotta, you gotta deal with some things, and then you can come to God. No, that's not the gospel of grace. You come to Christ, and he cleans you up spiritually. His grace changes you, and, and his love transforms you. You come to God baggage and all, sin and all, junk and all, rebellion and all, darkness and all, and then he takes all of that and he forgives you. That's what he does. God's in the business of transforming people's lives. He's in the business of giving second chances. Look at the life of King David. Look at Moses. Look at Saul who became Paul. God gave these men second chances and he can do it in your life as well. God, he specializes in taking your past and then making something beautiful out of it because he redeems you. He saves you by his grace. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have done something that you're completely ashamed about? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay, now lean over to the person next to you and tell them what that thing was that you did. Okay, all right. So for some of you that didn't raise your hand, you don't want to like tell the person next to you, right? Yeah, we, we, let's just keep it real here. Be honest. There are things that we have all done in our lives that we are completely ashamed about. If you look, if you go back to the beginning, go back to the book of Genesis, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve. Perfect environment. Perfection. No sin. I mean, utopia, heaven on earth. They were experiencing the presence of God. They were walking with God in the coolness of the day. Oh, what Adam and Eve lost, Christ, Christ redeemed. Christ came back, everything that Adam lost. Paul tells us in Romans, Christ, Christ redeemed it. Christ gained it back. And so there will be, uh, our future home is with Christ and we will walk with God and we will be in his presence again someday. But back in the day, it was perfect before sin. Before sin brought illness and disease and tragedy and death. But, but tucked away, there's a little verse tucked away in Genesis 2.25 that says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's incredible to me that they were naked and they were not ashamed. Not, not so much the naked part, but there was no shame. They were naked and there was no shame. No sense of embarrassment. Nothing to hide. Nothing weighing them down. They were naked and enjoying the beauty of God's creation and they felt no shame. Here's the deal. Why did they cover themselves? Because they sinned. When they sinned, Satan, we, we know the story, the serpent, you know, tempted them. They disobeyed God. They gave in to temptation. Because of that, they hid. They sowed fig leaves. They tried to cover themselves. 
Clothing is a perpetual reminder that we are broken. Clothing is a perpetual reminder that we are flawed, we are fallen, we are broken, and we need forgiveness. There's so much shame here. The reality is they sin. Now, when you, you bring up the word sin, you know, people are that's not politically correct. You, you don't want to tell people that they're sinners. Well, it's biblically correct that we are sinners. I'd rather be biblically correct than politically correct. I just, that's just me. I'd rather go with Jesus than go with culture. God is perfect. They fell short. They sinned. They rebelled against God. And, because, and so when they sinned, what happened? Deep-seated sense of shame came into their lives. They covered themselves. They went into hiding. They didn't just have a feeling of what they, of what they did wrong. They had an identity that now they're bad. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is, is different from shame. Guilt is generally action-based. You do something, you know it's wrong, you're going to feel guilty. I wish I could, I wish I could go back and do that differently. It's, it's action-based. It's, it's based on decisions. Shame is identity-based. Guilt believes, yep, I did something wrong. It's, a, it's an acknowledgment Yes, I sinned. I disobeyed God. Shame takes that knowledge, internalizes it, and then believes I am bad. I am unworthy. I am dirty. So we feel guilty for what we do, but we feel ashamed for who we are. Let me break it down this way. Breen Brown said this. She's a shame expert. She said, shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore, this is key, we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. That's the key right there. That's where it's difference between guilt and shame. See, the Holy Spirit can use, can use guilt in your life. I mean, the Holy Spirit pricks us of our sin, convicts us of wrong. That's, that's a good godly thing. But then we internalize that guilt, and then that guilt makes us feel like, oh, I'm, I'm completely unworthy, unwanted. I'm insignificant. God could never love me. God could never forgive me. And so it, it warps, it twists our identity. Guilt is tied to what we did. Feeling ashamed is tied to, to who we are. How could God love me? What is it that you've done? What is that one thing that you've done that makes you say, I don't know if God could forgive that. I don't know if God can forgive that. How could God love me again? You know, maybe there's a secret in your life you have never told anyone. Your spouse doesn't even know. A parent doesn't even know. Your best friend doesn't even know. You would never you would never share that secret with another soul. Maybe the shame in your life is maybe some sort of financial debt. Maybe the shame is connected to your sexual past. Maybe your past is, is, is riddled with sin when it comes to just sexual promiscuity or maybe sexual problems right now in this very moment. Maybe, guys, maybe you're struggling with pornography. It has a... a, uh, a a vice on your life. Years ago, I came across a stat that said one in four guys battle with pornography 
in the church. One in four guys. As men, as followers of Jesus, we've got to treasure Christ and long for Christ and desire that intimacy with Christ more than we, more than we desire the fleeting pleasures of sin and images that the world can give us. What, what is it that we're struggling with? What are you struggling with? Maybe it's some sort of addiction. Maybe you got a hang up and you're, you're battling it. It's, it's, you're wrestling with it. Maybe there's something you've done years ago and it's haunted you today. It's haunted your identity. Not only do you feel guilty, but you feel so ashamed and you, you haven't been able to release that and give that to Christ. You know, the enemy is so deceptive. The enemy wants to connect that action, the thing that you did that was sinful, to who you are and how you see yourself. And then you start to believe. You start to believe that that, that action that you committed is beyond the reach of God's forgiveness. It's beyond the reach of God's goodness. There's no way God's grace can cover that. And the devil whispers to you, you're unlovable, you're weak, you're pitiful, you're insignificant, you're unworthy, you're unwanted. And let me tell you, I just, I'm here to tell you this. God gives grace. The book of Romans says that where, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. What does that mean? Stack up your sin, stack up his grace. Which one wins? Which one is bigger, church? Which one is bigger, your sin or the grace of God? God's grace. Stack up all your sin and all your past and all your rebellion, all your darkness, and God says, you are mine. You are forgiven. You're a child of the king. You are loved. You are forgiven. I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. I've plunged your sin into the depths of the ocean. This is the kind of God that we worship. This is the kind of God we serve. He's a God of second chances. We don't need to be stuck in this shame game where it's like it wrecks our identity. We are, our identity is found in Christ. All the promises of God are yes in Christ. And so Jesus, what, what does he do? He redefines what God is like. We know throughout his gospel ministry, Jesus said God's like a father. He's a loving father. He's radically generous. He's kind. He's forgiving. He gives second chances. He, he doles out his grace to those who desperately don't deserve it. Do you know that there has never been a time when God has not loved you? There's never been a moment, a millisecond in your life when God did not love you. And there's never going to be a moment in your life where God's going to love you more or God's going to love you less. See, we get into this performance trap. Sin, guilt, shame, it twists us. We start thinking, well, performance, I got to work, I got to work, I got to earn. Here's the deal. God doesn't give paychecks. He gives grace. He doesn't give paychecks. It's not what you can do. It's not you earning it. No, he doles out his grace. He covers your sin with his grace. The father in the story, he accepts the son, no strings attached. I love that. I love that. The father comes, the son comes home and, he, and the father's not like, okay, son, sit down. We, we, let's, let's hash this out. Let's hash this out before I let you come back to the estate. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He throws the best robe on his son. Hey, church family, who has the best robe? Yes, Jesus, amen. Amen for that. 
I'm, but you, you, you're getting ahead of me. You're getting ahead of me. I'm about to go to Jesus. Who has the best robe in the household? The dad. The dad gives the son his robe. Dad has the best robe. Our heavenly father, what is the best robe? I think it's a picture of righteousness. The Bible says that Christ who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. When you encounter Christ and you place your faith in Christ and you see the beauty of the gospel, guess what happens? You are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. What does it mean? His account gets transferred to you. And his account when it comes to, you know, meeting the standard of perfection is perfect. So his perfect standard is transferred to you. You are now righteous in God's eyes. Legal standing, you are made right in the eyes of God. You're right because of Jesus. Jesus who was worthy, you're unworthy, but he makes you worthy because his death, his burial, his resurrection. So the gospel changes your standing with God permanently. It doesn't just change your standing when you do good, when you don't sin. No, it's a permanent, fixed position. You, your position with Christ is rock solid. He throws a, his best robe on his son. He puts a ring on his finger. That really contains a, a seal representing that the son is a part of the family. He puts shoes on his feet, symbolizing royalty. He slays the fattened calf. I mean, meat was a delicacy. That was a big deal. Like, typically, Jewish families only ate meat on the Day of Atonement, on a high holy day like that. It was a, or, or maybe a private dinner party. Like, it was a big deal. You have to understand, there's no refrigeration here. Like, it was day-to-day living, right? Salting things down, you know? Um, day-to-day sustenance, just working to eat, right? And so here you have this dad. He says, get the fattened calf, slay it. The father is saying, son, you don't have to earn your way back into the family, I'm bringing you back into the family. I'm bringing you back into the family. And look at what the boy, look at what the, look at what he says. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. And that's the whole point of the trilogy of the parables. They're celebrating. There's celebration when one sinner gets saved, there's a party in heaven. The, the beautiful picture is God pursues. He accepts. He loves sinners. Look at verse 25 to 28. Now, his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. So the elder brother He's making his way to the house. He hears this loud music and dancing. I mean, if this is a picture of how the Father treats us, there's going to be dancing and celebration in heaven. Come on, man, right? When he hears the news that his younger brother, who squandered the inheritance in reckless living, he's back in town. The boy's back in town. And the Father has received him back. And he is furious. He's so angry. He refuses to go into the party. And he makes the dad come, leave the party and come out. Talk about shaming the father. The elder brother is shaming dad. I'm not going in there. 
you're going to have to come out here and talk to me. Look at verse 29. But he answered his father. Outside, away from the party, he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Here's point number three. Don't rely on your own self-righteousness. So there's two sons in the story. One bad, one good. The bad son is the prodigal son. And he represents the tax collectors and the sinners and the prostitutes, all the people that the religious people like look down upon. They're the prodigals, living in sin, far away from God. Then you have the good son, which is the elder brother, and he represents the Pharisees. They're mad at Jesus for receiving sinners. The elder brother's mad that the father has received the younger son, forgiven him. He's so upset. Notice what he said. He said, I have served you all these years. And notice what he said. I mean, this is crazy. He's straight up lying. He said, I never disobeyed your command. Baloney. You know he did. He did disobey his father. Both sons, now here's the interesting thing. Both sons are lost. The bad son gets saved. The good son remains lost. The bad son gets saved. The good son remains lost. The outsider becomes the insider. The insider becomes the outsider. The lover of worldliness gets saved. There's a huge celebration, huge fanfare. The goody two-shoe, the man of morals who stayed back home and he didn't waste the inheritance, no celebration. It's the great reversal. The good son, in many people's eyes, should be the one who's accepted by the father. Wouldn't you agree? Come on. Absolutely. I mean, we look at the story, and I, I, there should be a little bit of you that's like, man, he, he kind of got jacked. Like, he got, like, that's a tough deal. That's a raw deal. Put yourself in the shoes of the elder brother. You're like, wow, I've, I've done it right. I've stayed home, I've, right? I mean, I should be the one getting the celebration. But, but this younger brother who's made a mess of his life, he comes home, he gets the party. This is what's so mind-blowing about the gospel. This is the thing that I think it's so hard to wrap our our brain around and, and to fully understand it, God's grace operates differently than how we operate. We operate like you do good, you're going to get rewarded. You do bad, okay, consequences, boom, right? But the gospel of grace is, you know what? The bad son gets saved, the good son doesn't. Now, here's the deal. I think Jesus is making the point, the elder brother, he's so self-righteous. He's so like, you know, I never disobeyed. Like, I'm a good person. I mean, everything was, you know, he was basing everything on his moral goodness, his moral righteousness. God doesn't save anyone based on their moral goodness. God doesn't, God doesn't save us based on what we do good, what we do bad. God saves us based on his sheer grace. 
we are lost. We come back to God. Repentance, faith in Jesus. He does this transforming work and there's a party that erupts in heaven. Verse 31 and 32. He said to him, son, you're always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So how does the story end? It's a cliffhanger, man. Don't you love those cliffhangers? It's a total cliffhanger. Like, is the family reunited? Does the older brother go back into the party? Does he accept the younger brother? Do they live happily ever after as a family? Or, or is there forever a disconnect? Does the elder brother leave, squander the money? Does he attend the party? We don't know. We don't know because Jesus doesn't tell us. But the better question is not how does their story end, but where are you at in the story and how is your story going to end? Because the Bible is really clear. If you don't know Christ, you're prodigal. Your sin alienates you from God. But if you come to Christ and you surrender it all, and you place your faith in the living Christ, the Son of God, he will step into your life and he'll forgive you. This is why point number four is accept Jesus as the only way to be right with God. He's the only way to be right with God. Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, we've all been prodigals, rebelled against God, thinking our way is the better way, but in the end, Life without the Father leaves you pretty empty inside. One of my favorite hymns, I'm going to close with this right here. One of my favorite hymns is Softly and Tenderly Jesus is Calling. It's a song that is really near and dear to my heart because it's a song, I love the song, but it's a song that my dad would sing growing up in church. He would sing it so loud. And the song goes like this, softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for you and for me. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, watching for you and for me. Come home, come home, you who are weary, come home. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling, calling, O sinner, come home. Why should we tarry when Jesus is pleading, pleading for you and for me? Why should we linger and heed not his mercies, mercies for you and for me? Time is now fleeting, the moments are passing, passing from you and from me. Shadows are gathering, deathbeds are coming, coming for you and for me. Oh, for the wonderful love he has promised, promised for you and for me. Though we have sinned, he has mercy and pardon, pardon for you and for me. God is waiting and watching. Waiting and watching for you to come home. Have you come home to God? Have you recognized that there is a hole in your heart that only Christ can fill? There's a sin that only Christ can forgive. There's a purpose that only Christ can give you. A purpose now, the abundant life now, and the real life to come when we take our last breath. Let's pray.